0: Welcome to EJB Talks, Rutgers Blaustein School experts in policy, planning, and health, where we talk with our faculty and staff experts, as well as students, about how the fields of public policy, urban planning, public health, health administration, and public and urban informatics affect your lives. Welcome to EJB Talks. I'm Stuart Shapiro, the Interim Dean of the Blaustein School, and the purpose of this podcast is to highlight the work my colleagues and our alumni in the fields of policy, planning, and health are doing. We are spending this, our eighth season, meeting with our new faculty at the Blaustein School. We hired more than 10 in the past year in a wide array of fields, as the shows this season will demonstrate. Today, we're talking to one of our new professors in the public health arena, Professor Char Williams. Welcome to the podcast, Char.
1: Thank you so much, Stuart.
0: So you're new to the Blaustein School as a professor, but you're not new to Rutgers. So tell us a little bit about your history with this venerable institution.
1: Happy to. So um, I guess X number of decades ago, I attended the illustrious Douglas College, very proud of my alma mater. Um, I spent my undergrad career at Douglas College at Rutgers University here in New Brunswick. Um, And I truly treasure my years as an undergrad at Rutgers. Not only do I have the best memories, I made lifelong friends, Um, my sophomore year roommate is my best friend to this day, but this is also where I discovered my, this is where I discovered research and public health. And that's where I discovered my love and affinity for teaching as well. So um, lots of beginnings here
0: at Rutgers. Uh, And you decided to come back. So you really did like it.
1: I did. (laughs) Best evidence.
0: (laughs) We're grateful for that for sure. Now within Rutgers, of course, you and within your uh, you know, the vast array of fields you could have studied, you chose public health and you chose sort of the disparities that we've seen in public health to study. What made you do that?
1: I guess, let's see, uh, I took a circuitous route to public health. I was an economics major math minor um, as an undergrad and I thought, oh, I'll go work in corporate America. That's what I thought. Um, but one uh, day the winter of my junior year, a flyer kind of happened in front of me. It was at Douglas Student College, and it was a flyer for a summer program, Project Learn. It no longer exists, um, here, but it was a training program, a summer intensive, um, that introduced students to research. You were paired with a mentor. You were able to take some um course in research methods, and they introduced the statistical software. And I think build curiosity, ask questions, and get some foundation um, to help you make decisions about whether or not you could go on to grad school. Um, and that's really what kind of per, um, piqued my interest. So, there I was able to really learn about health disparities and not only what they were, but kind of how they come to be, not by happenstance and not just through your social identity, but through like a whole host of history and political and important contexts. And so, I mean, I don't know if I'm showing myself as a nerd, but what's more fascinating <laughs> than that, like seeing how these things kind of play out and it just breeds more curiosity is what happened. And so I thought, what a great way to use some of the quantitative um, skills I have then to, to, to kind of learn more about those things that interest me so um that's that's my route to public health and health disparities and and then kind of mixing it with my interest in quantitative skills and so thinking about how i can use those to answer interesting questions um or pose new questions um just been fascinating.
0: That's great. I will tell you two things that you have in common with many of our other guests. Uh, first of all, many of us took circuitous routes to get where we are uh, today. <laughs> um, 25-year-old me would never believe it if you told me. He was, uh, I, have a, I was a dean, much less a professor. So, uh, so yeah, we all, we all took a strange path to get where we are. And second, as much as we might all want to deny it, we're all nerds. So um, we w- we wouldn't be doing what we did if if we didn't have some serious nerdy qualities uh, in in us there. Um, so you're you're among friends in both both of <laughs> those. Uh, so you said you know you get to study interesting questions. I want to I want to ask you a little bit about some of the interesting questions that you do study. Um, and you study some really tough stuff like depression and suicide and uh, PTSD. Um, before we sort of get into your findings on this, this is obviously not an easy area to get data on. So I'm wondering, where do you get the material that you use to, you know, apply your quantitative skills to these really hard questions?
1: Where do I get my data? So I, so part of my circuitous route is that I collected a lot of degrees on the way. So um, in addition to to having an MPH, I have um, graduate degrees in biostatistics. And I think um, one of the benefits of that um, is that there's always a need for a biostatistician and there's always um, really qualified researchers doing exciting work and they need um, a methodologist on their team. Mm -hmm. And so I think since my grad school years, I've been able to participate and collaborate on a lot of. really interesting studies. And I just was able to, um, or blessed to make a strong collaboration with a developmental psychologist, a researcher who was doing work that very closely aligned with mine and was in a place um, that was able to welcome not only my expertise as a statistician, but able to invite my independent research and my subject area expertise. And so it was really just a perfect, um, a really perfect um, coincidence that's really been rewarding for me. So I'm able to kind of exercise my quantitative methodologic skills Mm -hmm. and start um, asking interesting questions and answering those questions and really play a role in building up kind of what kind of questions get asked and what kind of um, work we can look at, so.
0: So let's get to those answers then. What have you found regarding the, uh, these key factors that lead to these disparities um, between more well-off white populations and uh, Black and Latinx uh, populations, um, particularly regarding these tough issues like anxiety and depression?
1: So um, the work I've done in this area, depression, suicide, anxiety, PTSD, PTSD have has largely focused on survey data, mm-hmm. um, and both data sets that I've worked on actually um, are collected uh, from populations in New York, and so one's based out of Washington Heights, which um, I'm not sure if many know, predominantly um, Latinx population, and then the other is um, a longitudinal study that collected first in 1990 in, the, mm-hmm. in East Harlem from middle schools and high schools. And so that population is predominantly Black and Latinx. Mm-hmm. And in, this, these, in both these populations, um, we've asked important questions about socioeconomic um, disadvantage, uh, other experiences with respect to racism, discrimination, um, experiences in the healthcare um, treatment facilities. And also able to ask questions, uh, important screeners like the PHQ-910, which is a 10-item screener for depression, Mm. um, and other important screeners for PTSD um, and anxiety, and able to associate experiences um, of discrimination, socioeconomic disadvantage, and important mental health outcomes. And I'll kind of highlight two main findings. Um, In one particular study, my interest really is looking at um the diagnosis of these these um these conditions and so in that study we're looking at how many people have been diagnosed by a a medical or clinical provider Mm -hmm. and then looking at results from screeners that give an indication of symptomology of these diseases to look at um how many are diagnosed and potentially in treatment and how many have undiagnosed mental health conditions and are not receiving treatment Um, as an indication, not only of um, like undiagnosed mental conditions, but also to, to kind of speak to some non-traditional assessments and means of identifying um, this population, which is known to have less traditional um s- symptomology with yeah. respect to de- depression anxiety and um thinking about how these screeners and how these clinical diagnoses work and thinking about which other partners can be involved in the diagnosis and treatment of populations marginalized populations right so thinking of non-traditional mm-hmm. um way- routes of accessing care thinking of ways to get Um, folks into screening and therefore treatment. Um, So that's one aspect of it, the diagnosis and the identification. Mm -hmm. And then the other aspect of it is looking at the impact of exposure to discrimination, socioeconomic Mm. um, disadvantage on health. And one of those health outcomes is uh, depression and um, anxiety. So there's kind of like two things going on.
0: And so you, just just so it's clear in my mind, Mm -hmm. so you do find uh, a lot of sort of undiagnosed conditions, uh, people that are sort of scoring high on the screener, if you will, but not having formal diagnoses, is that uh, particularly among these disadvantaged populations?
1: Exactly. So what we find there, um, and in that study we have both non-Hispanic white, um, people of Latinx and Hispanic descent, as well as African-American and Black populations in the Washington Heights sample. And what you see is higher levels of undiagnosed depression among uh, marginalized communities. And in, a, in that particular paper that we are discussing, we, can, we also um, talked about what that looks like in terms of cost cost with respect to quality of life.
0: So do the, and you may not know this because it's probably outside the scope of your study, but do the lack of diagnoses come because people don't think to go to a doctor and talk about these symptoms? Or is it because they go to the doctor and probably because of who they are, the doctor dismisses these symptoms as possible? uh possible signs of a medical cause or is it something else entirely
1: it kind of is a little bit out of my scope but um in in my discussion and in my thinking about this topic i've um and as i am want to do go off on tangents and so i've done quite a bit of reading (laughs) me too as
0: you notice
1: yeah (laughs) (laughs) on it and I think a, a number of things can be happening here. There are considerations with respect to how these diagnostic criteria are developed and uh-huh. um, the populations on which they're trained on. And so there is that consideration about whether some of the populations that are represented in my study, um, some of these marginalized groups, are they a part of the um, clinical um, assessments and development of these diagnostic criteria. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other thing is about the relationship between these populations and um, health services. Um, and so whether or not they're actually seeking that kind of care or they're in the space to get that kind of um, care. And, and in some of my reading, they, I, I did find that there are there is now the, um, well, some healthcare organizations have started instituting like a PHQ 2 So that's a two item questionnaire screener Mm. for folks who walk in, into the ER, for example, so they can Uh. get a little screener to be more quickly identified because many times you don't get to see these patients and be able to give them this kind of um, screening or be able for them to get this kind of attention. And then um, another thing was, um, which is related to um, the first point, is how depression um, or mental ill health kind of shows up in different populations, and whether not only the screeners and the tools that are used to assess, but whether the the places that people attend um, for that kind of support. So maybe it's not a medical location, perhaps we need to be looking at community organizations, perhaps we need to be looking at um, traditional places of care, which sometimes can be um, religious organizations and some groups um, or some other kind of social spaces. So those are some of the things I've been thinking about and I've read about. Um, Mm -hmm. But yes, not really directly my exact scope, but certainly something I'm interested in and have been um, reading quite a bit about.
0: Right. I, I don't imagine you can be immersed in these things and not think about those kinds of questions uh, right. as, you're, as you're doing them. Um, relatedly, your answer sort of points a little bit in this direction. Um, what in terms of the what do we do about it? Um, and you talked about churches and community organizations. You talked about changing diagnosis, diagnostic tools, uh, et cetera. Are there anything else we should be thinking about as implications of your work?
1: you know to go back to the changing of the diagnostic tools i I really truly the crux of the matter is a lot of the burdens um so the exposures to discrimination and financial distress and Mm -hmm. life stress um kind of get under the skin and affect Mm. people physiologically. And this is what we see when we talk about allostatic load and cumulative stress and weathering related to experiences. And so I almost back off of the diagnosing and really focus in um, on all the structural or the systematic and systemic ways in which um, marginalized folks are experiencing um, distress and stress and how that shows up in mental in your mental health outcomes but also in in your biologic like physical health markers and so i guess it's me wanting to highlight more a lot of the structural Mm -hmm. and systematic ways that this burden kind of is built and not focusing too much um not for lack of importance but just for the fact that i you know like you have to focus somewhere
0: sure um
1: on those those kinds of um, exposures um, while recognizing that of course um, how one diagnoses and kind of i feel like that's more tied to payment and i right. want to focus more on um, the structures that exist um, to kind of perpetuate a lot of these um, health outcomes
0: right well that leads me to my last question what next? What, what what kind of what can you tell us about one or two sort of things you're going to be working on in the next year or two?
1: Oh my goodness! One of the harder questions to answer because I have so many ideas. I know um... you got
0: to pick out pick out the one that our <laughs> listeners going to be like, "Ooh, that sounds cool."
1: So I think closest at hand, I'm working on some papers um, that look at the association between um, discrimination and socioeconomic disadvantage and allostatic load. So I'm quantifying mm-hmm. um, cumulative stress using a number of biomarkers um, from saliva, dried blood spot, um, as well as some al- some anthropometric measures to create uh, an index called allostatic load, wanting to see how discrimination and economic disadvantage kind of gets under the skin. Um, to, to lead to this um, cumulative stress burden called allostatic load and how that um, in turn impacts health. So that's where I am right now.
0: How are you gonna measure the independent variables there, the discrimination piece?
1: So the discrimination piece, um, it's a good question. So right now we have about 30 years, eight time points of self-reported um, experiences of, interpersonal discrimination, oh, okay. internalized discrimination, um, as well as a number of measures on socioeconomic disadvantage having to do with educational attainment, income, and financial stress. But I'm hoping in the very near future, um, within the next uh, year or so to extend this work, to include measures of structural racism. So we have for these um these individuals also residential information. And so we can try to, as best as we can, capture inequities on a number of socioeconomic markers at the zip code level, and to, to see how we can incorporate that in the analysis. But that's further out.
0: Yep, 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 um, yeah. I can see that. Yeah, like housing and education. and
1: Exactly, incarceration, um, yep.
0: et cetera. Gotcha, fascinating stuff. Sure, thanks so much for coming on the podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me. This is fun.
0: (laughs) We'll have you back. Of
1: course. Um,
0: A big thank you to to Sharn as well, to our uh, production team, Amy Cobb and Karen Olson. We'll see you next week with another talk from another expert at the Blaustein School. Until then, stay safe.